You're listening to an ACCA podcast. Thank you. So once again, it's a great pleasure to welcome you here to ACCA this afternoon for the uh, second session of Artist Talks accompanying the um, uh, current exhibition, Like a Wheel That Turns, the 2022 McFarlane Commissions. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people as sovereign custodians and traditional owners of the land upon which we're meeting and to extend our respect to Elders past and present and to all First Nations people. Um, I would also like to especially welcome Jason Fu, Jean Pascoe-White and Gian Manick who um, are joining us this afternoon as participating artists in the show and who will be speaking about their work. And also to extend apologies um, on behalf of Esther Stewart, who is unable to join us today. I'd also like, like to acknowledge um, my colleague and co-curator of the exhibition, Annika Christensen, who is also unable to join us. We're delighted to present this second session um, with participating artists. And um, just, just to note that um, the exhibition is the third in an ongoing series, um, the uh, McFarlane Commission's um, the current uh, Iteration is titled Like a Wheel of Turns, which reflects upon painting um, in a kind of expanded sense, uh, painting that ex extends beyond the kind of the, the frame or the studio and into the world at large in various contexts. Um, acknowledging painting's ability to speak across generations, to personal, social and familial connections and histories, as much as to cultural and artistic references and legacies, and to accommodate multiple modes of time and perception simultaneously like a wheel that turns, brings together a diverse group of artists whose works might collectively derive from a studio-based practice, but who share an interest in the intersection between painting and other materials, forms and disciplines, including architecture, literature, performance, ecology, music, healing, and the wider field of human relations. Today we will hear from, um, from Jason, Gian and Jean about their um, ambitious new works that they've created, especially for the exhibition. Um, we're going to be moving through the galleries and in some cases we'll be in sort of quite tight proximity. Um, so just a quick note, um, just to be careful underfoot because there are a number of works on the floor and so just to be careful as you are moving through the spaces, please. Um, and also, if you can please um, just be careful and be mindful about um, social distancing whilst inside the galleries and the wearing of masks is welcome and encouraged. So um, in the first um, instance, it's my great pleasure to um, welcome Jason Fu, who might like to come down and join me. Um, Jason is a multidisciplinary artist with a practice that includes painting, installation, performance, film, and occasionally food and events. His diverse body of works are united by a shared interest in, in the ideas of identity, family, and culture, informed by his experience growing up in Australia as the child of first-generation Chinese-Vietnamese immigrants. So, would you please um, join me in welcoming Jason Fu. Um, we might start, actually, with the title of this work, Jason, which is um, a, a long one, but it, it, the title of the work is Everyone is Dead Except for Me, Everything is Futile, and I am Tired. I wait in my little house for the winter to take me. So there's a great sense of existential melancholy in this title and a reference to the self, the idea that life is fleeting and the house as a repository of memories. And Jason, you work in a variety of ways. You, know, you work making paintings, performative processions, and in this case, a sculptural installation. Can you perhaps in the first instance outline your motivation 
or inspiration for developing this sort of tomb-like form or mausoleum um, or memorial and its relationship to your paintings and performances? Yeah, um, I think the original um, inspiration for this was I studied in Nova Scotia in, I think maybe nearly 10 years ago. Um, uh, Nova Scotia is off, off the east coast of Canada. It's like a small island off there, but there's a really famous folk artist called um, Maud Lewis, and she had a little house like this, which she painted on and in, and she had a little bed and a kettle, and she lived there with her husband, and um, they rebuilt the house in a museum, um, and people have rebuilt her house um, in honour of her as well. So I really sort of liked that um, idea, and it stuck with me for 10 years, and then um, I didn't actually realise this was a painting show um, uh, until after I built the house. Uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> but it's got paintings on it. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was, that was like one strand of the inspiration, but it was also a few different things of like, I've been watching a lot of, um, I feel like a lot of people in my generation watching a lot of the hoarders um, TV shows and the preppers. Um, I don't think I'm a hoarder or a prepper, but there's something really not contemporary, but I feel like contemporary about the idea of um, hoarding and prepping these days and um, wanting to keep everything and be prepared for any situation. You know, part of that being um, that we have great access to, um, you know, catastrophic events that are happening all over the world and we have great anxieties about um, a bunch of different things. But yeah, there's, there's like a million different strands of inspirations. Um, this wasn't meant to be uh, some sort of COVID doom and gloom show. Um, but in the same way I was watching the TV show Station Eleven, that wasn't meant to be sort of a, a COVID show. It was made pre-pandemic. But um, yeah, that's another source of inspiration. I've forgotten what, what was the question. <laughs> I mean, I think also it's interesting because a lot of your work actually takes art out into the world, such as the yeah. recent procession that you made, for example, at, for Rising. Whereas this is actually much more of a kind of tomb-like form or a mausoleum or a sort of collection of objects. And so, I mean, I think it's interesting what you're talking about, you know, the, the idea of objects as memento mori and as kind of, yeah. you know, um, as you know, representations of life. But, I mean, yeah, I think I'm also interested in, like, uh, shrines. Um, uh, a lot of my works use temple formats or shrine formats as well. So for me, this is a little sort of shrine to my older self, maybe. Um, and then we do leave offerings and things. Um, there are a few different um, sort of mini gods that I've littered around the place with little offerings in front of them. Um, and then there's the greater offerings to me, you know, the, the cans of tuna and then the, the instant rice and stuff like that, so, yeah. And you know, poetry and folklore and humour are key motifs which recur through your work. Um, and there are a number of guardian figures that we see on this shed um, that appear both on the doors and the sides of the, of the house. Um, and these have a relationship both to calligraphy and also to graffiti and other forms and other cultural references. Can you give us an insight into the significance of these figures? Yeah, I feel like folklore, poetry and humour are like... Um, they're sort of... They're quintessential into any culture, but in, in particular... Um, my own cultures of, um, you know, Chan Buddhism, 
um, draws on the absurd or humor and, and folklore and calligraphy and poetry are sort of, you know, they're in the everyday of Chinese culture. So it's not even a, like when I told my uncles in China I was doing calligraphy, they're like, well, yeah, so does everyone, you know, this is what you learn in high school. And I think there is that Western lens of like, oh, wow, that's very ancient and deep, but it's just culture. Mm. And I think um, uh, as, as immigrants and um, people that have come over, you know, there isn't that culture here, um, as in the new, new people that have come sort of thing. So it is, can be seen as this sort of weird thing, but it's actually just in the everyday. But in terms of the um, calligraphy and the, um, I mean, the, you're talking about the door gods. So on yeah. the other side, there's the mansion, which is the door gods you'll see um, next to temples. But then I've included this sort of cartoon dragon, and there's a cartoon hairy man at the back. Um, yeah, so the, the narrative around this is that it's like a post-apocalypse, and I'm the only one that survives. Um, and I find it interesting that um, that we sometimes hold on to this ancient cultural stuff, but that also in a post-apocalyptic world, you know, cartoons could become the, you know, gods or the, the sort of um, the things that we worship because that's all the literature that's left, you know, post the fire or something. Um, it's, it's a particular strand in the TV show Station Eleven. I don't know if anyone's actually seen it, but I thought it was a great show. Um, but it, in the show, there's a comic book that survives the apocalypse and it becomes like the Bible for this um, sort of um, new world that exists. So I, I see that happening. You know, I see a lot of what we worship, what our culture is as um, not what is best, but what has survived, um, you know, whether for good or bad. You know. So this is sort of what this is. This is not what is good, it's just what has survived, what has been hoarded, you know, like, yeah. And within the, um, the, uh, the, sh the shrine, there are a lot of your own personal and family, family collections, and, and then there's other more pop cultural references, but, um, and you've mentioned before, you know, the figure of yourself as an old man, you can hear the, the old man snoring and whistling, um, it's a very beautiful soundtrack, um, and the, the flame of the fire is also a bit like a memento mori as well, and the sort of fleetingness of, of life. But I wonder if you could reflect a bit more on the idea of collecting worldly possessions and what they mean to you or not. Yeah, I think um, COVID made me really um, realise how important sort of my friends and family were, you know, being away from them, not being able to see them. But that I still hold that objects, you know, we place our importance in them. Um, whether they're a gift from someone, whether they were with us during a significant event. And that's really important, but um, I don't want this work to be a either-or thing, mm. is good or bad, but mm. for me, this is like me in the future, if I'd made all the wrong choices and just kept my belongings rather than mm -hmm. um, the experiences, the fleeting experiences of my friends and family and seeing them and enjoying their company. Um, yeah, so I, I guess that's that's what I see as hoarding. So this idea of like these objects uh, forever, and so we will never lose um, uh, the people that we love, the things that we love. But that that's sort of like a false 
um, belief. That's why the, there's a fake fireplace, there's a fake cartoon snoring. There's a lot of objects in there that represent things that are real but aren't um, functional or really real. That's why there's like sort of um, things from different eras. You know, you've got your old phone, old clock, but then a newer laptop, and then yeah. Um, I wonder before we continue through to meet with Gian in the back gallery, whether the people have questions for Jason while we have him. Yeah, that's okay as well. <laughs> there's no question. <laughs> Oh, actually, on another note, sort of relating to that, a lot of this junk I've stored at my parents' house and my mum's been trying to get rid of for a really long time. Um, Dad and I both hoarded. Um, uh, it was a childhood memory for me. We got the National Geographic every year. Um, and it was really lovely reading through those, and that was a childhood memory. But um, I, I feel like it's not an uncommon thing for people to hoard National Geographics. Um, but mum was like, yeah, can you just get them out of the house? And so. Part of this work, it's a bit of a joke, but it's actually not really, is that, yeah, I've put all the stuff in their shed in there, and then I'm hoping someone's gonna acquire the work, and then my mum doesn't have to deal with the, the junk again, so, yeah. That's a, perhaps a really nice place to, to um, sort of take a pause, but certainly the idea of the home as a repository of memory, um, the idea of the gallery as a repository of memory, the idea of speaking across generations to those who've come before us is a kind of motif which runs through a number of works in the exhibition. Um, so thank you very much, and please um, join me again in saying thank you to Jason Fu. Thank you. So we're now going to um, move through to the back gallery, Gallery 4, to um, meet with Gian Manik. So perhaps we can reconvene. So, um, yes. Uh, again, thank you, welcome. Um, it's a great, great pleasure to welcome um, Gian Manik, um, for whom painting plays a kind of central role in Gian's practice um, as a means to uh, test ideas as much as formal outcomes. Um, Gian works in a range of uh, cultural contexts and with a range of technical approaches to painting um, and also works in different contexts as well, but um, primarily sees himself as a painter. Um, his work is technically very dexterous and is quite prolific and he often adopts a quite insouciant approach to subject, often combining loose gestural marks with considered technically skilled details and depicting images gleaned from disparate sources, perhaps the internet, popular culture, personal memories and um, other artistic and cultural histories. So um, please uh, welcome uh, Manik. And Gian, perhaps just to start off, um, you're an array here of um, and here at first quite incommensurate from very different stylistic perspectives um, and informed subject. Um, so can you perhaps begin by talking through the conceptual and structural format series of new works that you've built? Yeah. Um, so I guess the it was interesting, like, I think Jason was saying before about, like, representation and then, um, I guess, modes of kind of working through subject and then execution like that. Uh, I guess, like, there's, like, umbrellas that form the practice, which is about uh, Dutch uh, genre painting um, taken from 
my mum's side of uh, being a painter and then her dad also being a painter, um, which has this like really sort of quite prosaic but deep history. Um, and I guess I use that as like this first umbrella of like um, what sort of hierarchical structures they um, favoured in terms of subjects. So there's history, still life, landscape, animal, interior and portrait. So I sort of like use those as I guess um, what works I would execute and then I guess what I wanted to do was like interrogate and uh, be a bit more dynamic about how I would approach each subject using, I guess, like, like the skill and agency to execute concepts that I had, or maybe like teach myself how to do something to then execute that. Um, and I, it's a bit difficult sometimes, I think, <clears throat> having such a like, diaspora because we're known for like one thing, but then I think that is like important to have this like energetic approach to painting, to um, validate ideas and sort of submit and do the opposite. So, yeah. And Jan, just before we get into perhaps more specific, you know, works themselves, but um, you've also previously discussed the idea of um, these quite disparate paintings as a form of self-portraiture yeah. and of genre painting as a form of self-portraiture. And on the one hand, relationship to genre painting comes, as you've mentioned, through your mother's, you know, heritage in Dutch painting and you, you actually train as a young person in quite classical, in classical modes of painting. Yeah. But um, how do you see this um, sort of suite of works or painting more generally as a form of self-portraiture? Um, I think that, like when I was studying at uni, I was always interested from how I was taught and also, I guess, like, you know, it is a flex to sort of move towards realism um, or away from it. And I think that like that's some sort of play that I've always had. Um, so I think that, you know, doing these like representational body sort of paintings when I was at uni and then sort of validating that by using myself as subject um, coming out of uni. Sorry, this is a little bit of a... Um, and then, yeah, but um, I think after that I sort of wanted to sort of paint the way that I liked looking at paintings and that was more abstract expressionist. So what I was doing was using foils and reflective fabric um, to paint self, but then the execution looked sort of abstract. So I was kind of validating and I guess um, considering a scale of abstraction to realism. Um, yeah, so I guess like the practice that I've always have had is always about self and yeah, self-portraiture. Um, I think that moving away from that, it's almost like, like I was gonna say a dream, but that sounds really cliche. Like, you know, like there's images that come in, into that, so I think having narrative and more sort of like recognizable figurative things 
have made that practice sort of obsolete um, and then it's not so sort of monosyllabic so then everything can kind of be uh, a subject or an agent to play with. Yeah, because, I mean, in this suite of seven paintings, you're making work which is, you know, some are after photographs of yourself, some are after photographs drawn from the internet and from media culture and, you know, um, other kinds of streaming contexts. There's one painting on plein air, so there's actually quite um, different uh, kind of, I guess, technical um, approaches, but also source materials to the work. Yeah, like I think that, like I said, with that sort of like initial umbrella of Dutch genre, um, which was just all about very sort of like obvious subjects, within that I think that I knew that I have to do a landscape, so how can I make a landscape that can be its own sort of um, island? Um, and obviously like if I'm the person that makes it, that's the connecting mm. tissue. Mm. So I think that having sort of a play and like I, I use like energetic and dynamic quite a bit recently, which I don't know if, I don't know, like, yeah. Well, that's a very good segue to this work because I think, I think what's really exciting about this work is that it's a work which both has a kind of looseness and a sense of drawing and the work is almost coming into being, it's still in formation, but it sort of locks into these very extraordinary moments. And I guess speaking about this work um, in particular, um, it's, you know, obviously it's, in terms of scale, it's the keynote work in the group. It, it, it comes from the sort of the, the genre of history painting, which is usually the highest in the hierarchy of genre painting. Um, it's a work which is um, titled Victory and Conflict. And as we can see, it's a series of male figures um, invested in representations of war and masculinity and sexuality. So these wonderful ideas all about the genesis of things behind this work. I think, like, initially I went to the NGV and I was looking at, because I, as, as far as like one of the subjects which was historical paintings go, a lot of them were to do with like war, um, which I sort of like can't really particularly resonate with personally. Um, but then, you know, seeing these kind of images growing up and going to galleries, they just, they are just images or, you know, things that, like uh, uh, most of the stuff I'm like, oh yeah, cool, it's a, a picture of that but um so I think going there I sort of was thinking about the way I would or wouldn't bend to the scale of being in an institution like this um and I kind of you know that within having sort of really small and large works I think that's kind of an important thing for this suite I guess with uh this I interpreted the idea, the idea of like a war or a documentation of sort of conflict as things that come from two sides. Um, so there's like, I guess, like a seam in the center of the work. And then it might not be so obvious, but for me sort of choosing imagery and then painting them um, one thing at a time, it was always something coming from the left and the right. Um, and I think... So is that about a formal tension or dynamic in the work in, in the first instance that's a structural formal tension? Yeah, like a really like obvious compositional element that happens within these sort of like historical war paintings mm -hmm. which have like two sides battling. Mm -hmm. And I think that like just 
you know, fucking and pornography also sort of, for me, hold that visually. Um, so I, I guess that was something that I thought, I don't want to sound too formal, like really interesting. Like it's actually kind of like strange and sexy and weird. And I think having those two things sort of like pastiche or like on top of each other, I think it's almost like not knowing if it was like a conscious decision or not, but having that sort of masculinity um, kind of unpacked and ripped apart um, for, you know, people to see, I think is kind of, was quite successful, like, for the work. Um, and also I think, you know, in some of the texts that's written, been written about it with calling into question, like, what representation is and documentation of histories, um, I think is interesting. Because it was important for me to not paint anything that had been a real event. Um, probably, like, from a little bit of a fear of, you know, cancellation stuff. But then also just, like, I, it's not my story to sort of show and tell. And so... And speaking of pornography, yeah. there is a kind of tradition of almost the yeah. pornographic representation of war and conflict. Exactly. Which is something you sought to kind of elide or yeah. avoid. Um, but perhaps that might lead into the source material. So where, where do the images come from if they're not taken from, uh, you know... Yeah the field, so to speak. Mm. So they're all um, just stock images of me Googling, like, men, war, or, like, fighting. Like, just, like, these really, in, like, basic sort of searches and then usually finding things with a watermark over the top of it so I knew that it wasn't real and you could buy it, but obviously not buying it. Um, and I guess like pornography sort of does the same, so it's like this really like fake representation of sex and um, all conflicts, you know. And I'm just, just then I'm also thinking about the film Beau Travail, you know, yeah. which is also a great example where the two, you know, sort of yeah. fields of sexuality and conflict are yeah. brought together in a really quite profound, you know, um, almost um, epic ways. Yeah, but also like quite subtle as well. Yeah. Like that film doesn't really have any explicit um, scenes in it particularly. Like it's always implied and I think that like having a screenshot of something um, painted sort of does that as well. And I've, I've, done, I've done a few paintings like this where they're more sort of um, collage and the way that I work through it is like completely different than I guess like a formal composition, which the other, the other paintings sort of how they operate. Um, so usually it's just not really being able to see the whole thing, but kind of working on one part at a time and then, you know, moving it around the studio, especially being such like a large scale. Yeah. It's an extraordinary work. And perhaps, um, could you also, could I also ask you about your self-portrait with, um, you know, back to the viewer. Um, so it's, it's also got a quite particular um, art historical reference, although it's really made from a photograph, a recently made photograph, and it was made you know, in the last few months whilst you were on residence up in Bundanon. But it also harks back to earlier forms of representational painting. Yeah, like I didn't think that I needed to actually do a portrait because I consider everything to be sort of what is unpacking self through you know, history, story, titles, 
um, memory, all that kind of thing. But then I had time. <laughs> and I was like, oh, it could be nice to do something sort of small relating to like the landscape that I was mainly at the place to do. Um, yeah, I guess what you're sort of talking about is like that artist gaze of um, like male to female um, appropriation of image, um, you know, like the, which, you know, happens in maybe like Vermeer paintings a bit, but also like these sort of like bathhouse images of like curvaceous women bathing in their backs. Um, I mean, a good example is the, is the word anger in the yep. 19th century, which this work sort of reminds exactly. me one of as well, if you think about yeah. it. Yeah, so I think I was kind of interested, I sort of wanted my partner to take a photo of me and then maybe play around with the scale of like those curves, um, making my hips bigger and my shoulders smaller. Um, so it had that sort of like lens of um, male to female, but I just took a photo on my phone. And yeah, I guess like for me, the image was more about um, what images I have on my body rather than the actual image of the body. So they're images of bits of fabric and towel, which I think I've always had this like strange, um, I shouldn't say strange, like accepting, um, like fascination with like fabric and, um, you know, it comes from this like history of like feverish nightmares and stuff as a child and um, yeah, having to like brand that on my back for no particular reason. So like it's more an image of the tattoos and that's what the subject's called rather than a nude self-portrait. Um, are there any questions from um, the audience you'd like to ask of Gian whilst we can? Um, I went to Bundanon to do a residency um, uh, to kind of get out of town, but also I knew that I would go there and then just having to execute like the landscape um, sort of node of the show. Um, it didn't really matter like what I was going to paint. I think it could have been any landscape from anywhere. But I think when I was there, there was like this like boredom and yeah, it was just interesting sort of thinking about like artists that go and have to do these sort of like strange respite residency things and like having to find themselves and produce a body of work. And I just thought that was so like silly and ridiculous but also it was like kind of nice and I didn't like find myself or anything I just like painted this landscape and I guess like subject wise like the most interesting thing going there was <clears throat> on the way to the actual artist's retreat there was like one side of the road that had um, what they call cool burning so it's like an indigenous um, fire management practice and um, that was kind of the only real indigenous uh, acknowledgement that I had for like being there for four weeks. Um, it was always spoken about being like a gift from the Arthur Boyd Trust to the Australian government. So <laughs> I guess like it calls into question like, you know, acknowledgement and ownership of land. Um, and I think that, yeah, painting it in this really sort of like colonial um, 
McCubbin sort of esque manner was important to do that too. Yeah, yeah, I think that like for most of the work that I do, especially in the last like five or ten years, it's like coming to something and then seeing how I can um, use what I know and how to do something, but then also potentially teaching myself new ways of coming to execute concept. Like I think I said that before, like not having to bend to something, but having to sort of like, yeah, flex to, yeah. So it was like kind of important that that color palette and also, you know, those formal techniques were implied. I, mean, I think it's really interesting, you know, carrying that further, just um, that effect that this is a painting which is made on plein air, which is a, a seemingly very anachronistic artistic practice. Um, it's a 19th century practice, but also if we see the kind of the spatial framing of this painting, like my, many, you know, 19th century colonial paintings, we are visitors. There's a, we're in the fore, you know, there's a foreground, middle ground and depth and there's a, you know, it's, it's at a distance from the landscape, which is a very colonial perspective. And it's, it's, I think it's interesting how that plays out in the sort of replaying of that quite anachronistic painting practice. I painted it sort of like in the basement of the studio that I'm in at the moment because um, I have quite large walls, but the ceilings aren't very tall, so the bottom's like kind of fucked up and filthy because I was like stepping on it the whole time. Um, so it was kind of like on the floor. Um, and then it was just rolled, like I don't, the large works are never really stretched. They were all stretched here to put on the, yeah. And they'll probably be unstretched again after. Um, will you please join me in thanking Gia Manik? Um. And we're now going to move through into the um, neighbouring gallery to meet with Jean Pascoe White. So, also just be careful as we do move underfoot, there are works on the ground which we'll walk through. Thank you. It's my great pleasure to um, welcome Jean Pascoe White, um, whose Painting practice encompasses a whole range of diverse materialities and encounters with diverse bodies of, um, of uh, conceptual, material and uh, technical contexts. Um, her work um, has for a long time now engaged with um, sort of conceptual research and with disciplines including, informal disciplines including ecology, feminism and the wider field of human relations, which she brings into play with material processes that include methods such as natural dyeing, staining, assembling, drawing, painting, collage and sewing. Um, so it's a pleasure to welcome Jeanne. Um, please make her welcome. And Jeanne, perhaps to start off, this um, new work is entitled Embodied Water Entanglements. And the list of materials runs about seven lines long on the, um, on the, in the um, checklist um, and includes um, a vast range of organic and botanical materials including passion fruit skin, blackberry leaf and fruit, beetroot, carrot, marigold, onion skin, avocado, pits and skin, copper, beech leaf and bark, as well as painterly supports materials such as fibre, cotton, silk, wool, felt, linen, beeswax, crayons, etc. So, Sean, perhaps you could, could I ask you just to begin by speaking a little bit about your methodology in the creating of this and your work more generally? Sure. Um, well, I guess maybe in a way I'll start talking about the title. So, the 
embodied watery entanglements. I guess the use of watery was kind of this idea of me kind of coming to terms or finding a form that I can relate to a kind of ecological thinking but um, kind of connecting that to painting and so when I'm thinking and researching about water the idea being that it's something that's on this planet that just goes in cycles and cycles and we all share it like it there's no new water and so we're kind of essentially sharing these waters inside our bodies with each other but also with non-humans and lakes and rivers and oceans and paints and um, and it's also the way that it yeah that that painting can kind of be transformed onto a surface um, and both also thinking about this in kind of ways of like very generative ways um, but also really toxic and kind of destructive ways too. So I guess thinking about that in painting, I'm kind of thinking about, okay, how can we, or how can I think about um, making colour and painting in a way that's sort of softer or gentler or and might kind of erode and change continuously and more quickly other than like this idea of like the archival. Um, so I guess that brings me to why I would use an experiment with all these different materials. And I think the, the material process is very much um, a real experimentation for me too. Like I'm not very systematic in the way that I experiment with materials. So it's much more of a like what's in my um, kind of ambit at the time or my circumstance or... Um, and so in that way, yeah, the, the materials kind of really change and the experiments are not like a fixed recipe that I will use continually the next time, in a way. So, yeah, with each body of work, they kind of evolve. And for the, I guess for the benefit of the podcast, um, for those that can't see the work that we're in, um, the installation encompasses uh, a series of suspended um, fabrics, linens, canvases, um, beautiful veiled textiles, collage elements, but also the painting is also on the floor. Um, and in a way, I guess it's, it's a form of expanded painting or exploded painting in that you know, we as uh, viewers are actually within the work. And so there's a sense that we, there's, a, there's a dissolution of the relationship between the, the, the figure and the ground or the, or the body and the ground. And I, I'd be interested in your thinking around that, that sort of you know, is there a conscious idea to sort of dissolve relations between human and non-human sort of contexts? Yeah, yeah, um, very much. I guess I'm kind of interested in the idea that humans are non-human, really. Like, we're kind of made up of... We can't exist without the non-human. So I guess I'm kind of interested in kind of untangling that for myself as well. Um, and yeah, so thinking about it in a kind of installation form, also with that um, kind of experimentation of materials, I guess I'm interested in, yeah, how the, the person who's walking through all of you might um, contribute all your footmarks and your dust and the, so that there's this kind of entanglement that's bigger than just me, like I'm not trying to, yeah, bring my own, I'm kind of like bringing my own um, 
you know, world from the studio and my surroundings and domestic ecologies and all those sorts of things, but also, I guess, kind of bringing it in, but then when it's in an exhibition, it's kind of expanding it out again. And the idea, too, that the, a lot of the work that I make is often sort of cut up or reused or a lot of these works... Uh, yeah, older paintings that I've reworked or turned over and worked on the other side or cut in half. A lot of them are kind of collaged, made up of other works. And so the idea is too that beyond this exhibition that that sort of ecology within the painting keeps turning, I guess, in a way. And as, as well as calling upon the um, you know, contributions of the audience in the, in the way that the work develops and evolves over the course of the exhibition, in the making of the work, you've also called upon other helpers, in particular the elements. And so, you know, many of these works go outside, have been outside and sort of put to the, you know, the sun and the wind and the rain. And indeed, some of them have even been buried, I think, um, so that insects and other organisms actually begin to act upon the work as well and etch their own mark making. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that process? Um, yeah, that's right, I guess. They, I feel like they each have a kind of a life of their own in many ways. Um, yeah, as Max said, it's a, a lot of them have kind of been like poured with, you know, turmeric dyes and then I've kind of let them sit in my studio or I've hung them up on the line or in the grass outside or buried them. Um, a lot of them have kind of like sick, sick, um, sort of stuffed into pots and soaked in different dyes um, for months and months. Um, and so there's, and I guess, yeah, there's a real um, varied method to kind of how their works kind of come together um, and very intuitive in that sense too. Um, yeah, yeah, um, this, I think this work here is kind of a, in particular was like smeared with, we had sort of like an excess amount of stone fruit last summer and you know kind of all the stuff that fell on the ground was kind of like smeared with all their skins and then sort of left in the sun for a couple of months and the rain got really moldy and so it's now sort of fully dried out and that's what's sort of left of it and then I dyed over it with blackberries and so there's sort of like the idea also that it can keep going and going and going yeah like a regeneration yeah this is not necessarily a f the final state of the work. I mean, it's, this is one installation, obviously, which you know exists for a certain moment in time, but it's still in the process of transformation as we brush past these panels, as we walk over the work, and um, but potentially it will find itself reconfigured in another way, I guess. Yeah, 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 totally. I think that would be the hope in lots of ways. Um, and also, I think it kind of goes back to the idea, too, of, like, bodies of work and this idea of new bodies of work but that there is no real sort of um, beginning we're always drawing on previous things or um, in even in art history we're sort of repeating ourselves you know but in new iterations so um, yeah in that sense the idea is that but the actual material keeps going as much as possible kind of composty in that way you know Composting is becoming a very rich um, metaphor, I think, for artistic practice in recent times. Yeah, I love that idea. I've actually been dreaming about like the idea of yeah doing something outside and that kind of 
yeah, over evolution, over the exhibition or whatever, would be, yeah, an amazing thing to do, definitely. Yeah. I mean, it, it does feel continuous with the world beyond the gallery. It seems to bring the gallery, you know, the world beyond the gallery into the gallery, but you can also sense that it's equally going to be at home again in the world. I think that's what's very interesting about this sort of relationship between inside and outside and, and sort of cycles and ecological processes of transformation. Yeah, I feel like it, in many ways it's like the a sort of temporal archive of my everyday, you know, and um, a lot of that is also done between home and, like, looking after my children as well and um, between home and the studio. So I guess that's probably a big part of it that, yeah, is not necessarily explicit, but there is definitely their marks all over the work. <laughs> and, and I think that also very much informs kind of why there's so much like compost material for the dyes is because it a lot of it is sort of like uh, produced in these kind of domestic settings as well. So I, yeah, I guess that that would be kind of a large part of it too. Yeah. Well, um, I'd like to uh, firstly um, thank you all for coming and for joining us this afternoon. It's been really wonderful to hear from um, Jason and from Gian and Jeanne. And um, will you please? Um, join me in thanking Jeanne and thanking indeed all the artists um, for their presentations this afternoon. To hear more programs like this, please subscribe to the ACCA Melbourne podcast wherever you get your podcasts and sign up to ACCA's newsletter at acca.melbourne for all new releases and forthcoming programs.